Uptown kids this morning, they're going to be learning about something that is certainly worth proclaiming, and that is the fact that God is merciful. God is merciful. And so, that's what they're going to be learning. I want to invite you this morning to not turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, but to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. We've been in Hebrews for some time. We're beginning our Advent series our Advent series, and uh, we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham and how it overlaps with Advent. Now, Advent means coming. I'm not real smart, but I can, I can read. It says Advent means coming, and when we think of coming, who are we talking about? Who is arriving? Well, it's the arrival of the promised Messiah. And how does that intersect with Abraham and the life of Abraham. Well, the the promise of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Deliverer was actually given long before Abraham ever walked this earth. And yet during Abraham's life, God made an additional promise to him, to Abraham, that intersects with the coming of the Deliverer. Now, who is Abraham? Well, Abraham is the Jewish patriarch. The father of the Jewish people. He's the father of faith. His father's name was Terah, and together their family lived in the Ur of Chaldees or uh, Mesopotamia, between the two rivers, which is modern day Iraq. And uh, they lived there, likely worshiping the moon god there with their family, as they had for many, many years. And, And God came to this family and spoke to them particularly as we'll read in Genesis 12 to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to leave the land of your father and I want you to go to a place. He considered God worthy to be believed, worthy to be trusted, and he obeyed him. And so let's look at Genesis chapter 12, verses one through five. If you didn't bring a copy of God's word, you can either look on the screen this morning, it should be up there. Uh, You can also just grab the hard uh, black Bible right in front of you. We're gonna be on page 10, page 10, and on page 10, look for the the big one, two, there it says the call of Abraham, and that's where we'll read five verses. The scripture says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, God says. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, or Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions to the land of Canaan. Let's together just pause and ask God to bless the reading of his word this morning as we worship him. Father, we just stop, and as we often do, we, we ask you to do what none of us here can do. We ask you to help us to understand your word this morning, and not just understand it, but Holy Spirit, we we ask that you would apply this scripture to our hearts today. Would it open our hearts up, rather? And would these truths come in a little deeper? 
Father, would we love Jesus more because of our time together? And would it be more clear to us what you're calling each of us individually and collectively as a church to do as a result of these things? We love you, Jesus. We love the gospel, and we pray in your name. Amen. It is uh, the Advent season, and if you're less holy, you call it Christmas. Most of you have probably celebrated Christmas for a long time. And, 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 and in some ways, maybe the most special time of uh, the, the seasons that you've been celebrating Christmas, the time that you've celebrated it, has been when you were a child and you thought about that good Christmas gift that you wanted to get from your parents, your grandparents, whoever it was. You've, you asked, you hinted, you begged possible on your behalf, and uh, the day came and you opened up that package and you thought, today is the day that my life will be complete. And the vow that I solemnly gave my mother and father before God that I would never ask for another gift again. This will be all I have ever needed, all I've ever wanted. And that day came with its elation and joy, and you were overwhelmed, but just like the tide that comes in with the waves, it goes away. And the day that you thought would change your life came and went, and life indeed was the same as it was before. I want you to really think about that day. We probably all had it, and if not, Pastor Brett does counseling and would love to walk with you. But I want you to think about that day. That, I want you to think about that one toy. For some of you, you're like, literally, it's, you're speaking my language. It was last year. And for some of you, maybe it was more like 40 years ago. But I think by God's grace, he's going to help you to remember that gift. I want you to think about it. Get it in your mind right now. I can think of mine. It's in my mind. I won't share it with you, but... You think of yours. Now, where is it? Where is it? Some of us, we might have it still. It may be in a package on the wall, still in the original container, maybe unopened. That's how much you cherished it. Most of us, we opened that gift up and we destroyed it. For most of us, it wasn't even the end of that day between, uh, before the, the parts were broken and then maybe a few weeks later, the batteries. You know those cheap batteries that sometimes your parents buy? They begin to leak, that crusty stuff. It gets all over everything and destroys it. Maybe that happened to your toy. Or maybe you really just don't know what happened. It was there for a long time, and then it wasn't. Children, let me tell you what happened. When you were sleeping or while you were at school, your mother threw it in the trash. Again, see Pastor Brett. <laughs> or maybe you still have that toy or you had it for a long time and it didn't mysteriously disappear, but it did mysteriously go out of style. It suddenly wasn't cool to have that gift anymore. For a year, maybe a year and a half, two years, you took it to school and people thought that was your claim to fame. You thought that too. But suddenly something happened, or slowly it happened rather, and it wasn't cool anymore. It was out of style. Or maybe a new model came out, new technology. Some of you ladies in here are thinking, well, what you guys ask for, it surely will. Diamonds, the, the cut and the style of the ring, that comes and goes. And even then, we're unable to hang on to those things. Many of our wives, 
have needed new diamonds because that stone also mysteriously left, maybe in the ocean or along with the french fries in the back of the van, it was thrown away. At any point, at any rate, we can all likely agree that we've experienced a time in our lives where we thought this one thing that we had would change everything, and yet it really didn't. And we have no idea where it's at. In a box in the attic, somewhere in the depths of Washington County's landfill, we have no idea. And it's likely that you haven't thought of that thing that I asked you to think about for a long time. You've forgotten about it. Well, it isn't just presence under the tree that we receive throughout our lives that we forget about, that we become unimpressed with, or in our estimation, it becomes passe. We often forget about, we often become unimpressed with the gospel. There's a really good chance that even when you heard that, you immediately thought of the obedience of Abraham or his great faith. But what is absolutely extraordinary, and I want to draw your attention and your focus to for the next few minutes, is the nature of God's grace vividly displayed in those few verses. Here's the main idea. If you're taking notes, and it'll be on the screen, and I'll speak slowly so you can write it down. We'll, we'll, we'll hang here for a minute. The main idea is this. Christians must never forget the extraordinary nature of the grace of God in the coming of Jesus. Christians must never forget the extraordinary nature of the grace of God in the coming of Jesus. It's something that we all do. We did it with our toys. And you say, well, the gospel's so much better. Well, what, one thing we're going to notice today is it's not the, the problem with the product. It's, it's also a problem with us. It's in our nature. And so as we consider this idea that we should never forget, especially in this season, we're going to ask ourselves, what is it that we forget? Not our keys, not where our, what are the components of the gospel that are so extraordinary that we often forget? What are they? We'll start there. And then we'll move into asking this question, why do we forget? Why do we forget the gospel? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I certainly often forget the gospel. It waxes and wanes even throughout the day and the week. Even, Pastor Josh, since you've started speaking, it's done that. And I've been distracted. Am I even a Christian? What's going on in my heart? Well, we're going to answer that question. Why is it that we forget? And we'll move on to this. Where do we stray to? When we forget the gospel, when we forget the extraordinary nature of the gospel, where do we end up straying to? What's the lowest point in our lives that we would see this marble roll down to, the marble of our attention? And finally, we'll ask the question, and it will be answered, what are we to do about it? What are we to do about this idea that we often forget? the extraordinary nature of the gospel. Let's start there back with what is it we forget? What we forget. 
If you are paying attention there in chapter 12, you'll see in the first few verses, as Jesus, or as God, rather, the Father, the Lord, makes the promise there to Abraham, he says, I'll make of you a great, and I'll make your name great. He goes on to say, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll dishonor those who curse you. And he ends it with saying, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram, through you. And by the way, Christian, we're not there yet, but you know this. That promise there to Abram that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him is a reference to us. It's a reference to my tribe and to yours as well. And it's fulfilled in Christ through our brother Abraham. But if we looked more specifically at the things that we forget here, I would say one thing that we forget, and there's four, one thing that we forget about grace is that it is unearned. Four things we forget about grace. Number one, it is unearned. We may ask the question, why did Abraham or Abram get this incredible deal from God. Well, in an attempt to answer that question and to justify God coming to Abram, the, the Midrash, or the, the really none of them are true and none of them are accurate. All of them really just uh, puffing Abram up or Abraham up as if he was just some amazing character that God had no part in and he just happened to notice and he said, this is the guy that I'm going to bless. But that's not what the scriptures teach us. It's inconsistent. Scripture is incredibly crystal clear here that Abraham's confidence was in the recent personal promise that God made to him, and that confidence that he had in God's promise was counted as righteousness. Think about this. Abraham's righteousness was not counted as righteousness. That's true of you, too. Your righteousness, if we can say your righteousness, is actually not righteousness. If we were on the, the TV show, The Antique Road Show, and we went to somebody and we said, hey, I want you to take a look at this, uh, this accumulation of, of righteousness I have. Oh, I love righteousness. I'm an expert in righteousness. Let me take a look at it. You slide it across the table, and he begins to, to fumble through it and, and pilfer, and he looks it up and down and spins it all around, and he says, I'm really sorry to tell you. That what you're calling righteousness here is not actually righteousness. Well, that's not just true of Abraham. Did Abraham or Abram at this point receive this statement that he was counted righteous because he believed God? And so the first idea, the first thing that we really don't want to race past, and maybe you're even tempted to say, we've got it, let's move on, that's pretty elementary, Maybe you've done the very thing that the main idea is calling you not to do. To not race past this and just pause and look, not at the faith of Abraham, but at the nature of this promise made to him. It was unearned. It was unearned. We don't know for sure where Abraham's faith was beforehand, what he knew about God. There are some allusions to this we see in 
Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. You don't need to turn there. You could always write that down, Joshua 24, verse 2. I'll read it aloud. It says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. I believe what Joshua is saying here is that, hey, you need to know that the patriarchs, starting with uh, Terah and Abraham and Nahor, all those guys, all those dudes, they served other gods beyond the river. And which gods did they look at? Which gods did they ascribe to or worship? Well, likely the moon god and other deities that are not, in fact, deities. And so before we move on, we've got to stop and just look at what, why did God choose Abram? Was it any work of righteousness that he had done? No. It was unearned. It was according to God's mercy that he came to Abraham. Christian, in the, in the season of Christmas, I, I want you to stop and I want you to just think about this very simple truth. You have no righteousness of your own. And this extraordinary grace that we go and tell on the mountain is something that you have not earned. It's unearned. But I also notice it was unprovoked. Notice it was unprovoked. Not only is Abraham not this super righteous guy just sitting on a hill, he's not that, but also he's not somebody looking for God. He's not searching for God. He's not searching for the true God. This grace revealed to him was unprovoked, unrequested. It wasn't Abram's choice. It wasn't his own volition. The scriptures teach us that God was merciful to his enemy, Abram, and Abram was not seeking after God. Again, just as Abram's righteousness was foreign, that it was imputed to him as he believed the promise of God, so too you were not looking for God. The scriptures say that none of us are looking for God. You say, well, I have certainly found him. In a sense, that's true. But the reality is that until the Spirit of God has begun a work in your heart, you wouldn't even desire to seek after God. It's totally unprovoked. Maybe you might be thinking about a, a bad word right now. I know not a four-letter word, but you might be thinking about the word election, which, by the way, is a Bible word. And it emphasizes the choice of God. Oh, you define this term, this Bible term, election, or God's choosing. We could go this way or that and still be in bounds with what Scripture teaches us and what's orthodox. And yet, I want you to see, I want you to understand that it's conceivable that there are millions upon millions living in the Ur of Chaldees at this particular time. And that's also true of Haran where Abraham and his family have a sort of a layover or a stint that they've pulled there. What is it about Abram that set him apart, that provoked God to choose him to be the father of many nations? What was it about Abraham 
in that moment that when God looked at him and considered him that God said, this is the one that I will use to bless everybody in the entire world, to to bless all the nations of the earth. This is the guy that I will make his name great, which implies that his name wasn't at that point in time great. What was it? Well, I can assure you this. It was nothing to do with Abram and everything to do with God. Unley doesn't deserve it. It's unmerited and unprovoked, but it's also unimaginable. And this is extraordinary. This is truly extraordinary. That's kind of, in a sense, what extraordinary means. It's out of the ordinary. It's something that I couldn't even, in my own mind, conceive of happening. And that's true in Abraham's life. Now, we don't get all of the colorful details of how Abraham or Abram at this point in time squeals and screams as he opens this present of God's promise of a great name and great family and great blessing. But we know this, it's literally something that he could not have even imagined. We'll learn more about this in the coming weeks, but we're today in Genesis 17, soon we'll be in, or Genesis 12, soon we'll be in Genesis 17, and, and there God says, hey, not only am I going to be your God, and your people will be my people, but all of your people in the future, they're going to be my people too, and I'm going to be their God. This is like garden language. This is speaking of a relationship, a fellowship that mankind had enjoyed long, long ago when they were there in the garden, a personal relationship with God. That's something that Abraham certainly did not deserve, certainly in life. But God says to Abram, I'm going to be your God. And by extension, if you are in Christ today, think of that right now. Just stop and think about how extraordinary that is, that God would stop and he would come to you, he would reveal himself to you, And he would call you to be a part of his family. And he would say, the God of the universe, the God that sustains everything at this exact point in time, the God that you were a rebel against, he kneels down, so to speak, and he looks at you and says, I will be your God. Think of that. Is that not extraordinary? Is that not amazing? I think of Romans chapter 5. Verses 6, 7, and 8, where it says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died at the right time for the ones who were unable to do rightly and, in fact, were ungodly. And then in verse 7, it says, here's the crazy part. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Try to find somebody that would lay their life down for somebody that's righteous. Perhaps somebody might do it for a good person. But verse 8 says, in contrast from the arguing from the lesser to the greater, it says, God showed his love for us. Who is us? Look back at verse 6. The ungodly, not the righteous, not the good people. So we're not righteous, we're not good We are ungodly, and it says, but God shows his love for those ungodly 
sinners in that while they are still in the act of sinning, Christ died for us. Is that not extraordinary? It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? What's the other thing that we often forget? The final piece here of what we often forget is that it's unending. And we won't spend a long time here, but diamonds are forever until you lose them. And yet this covenant that God has promised to Abraham goes long beyond Abraham's life and the life of his son and his son's sons, and it extends to us and long beyond us for all of eternity. Again, not on the screen, but if you want to write it down and study this later, I think you'd be helped by it. Jeremiah 32, verses 38 to 41. There, God says, I'll give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me forever. He goes on to say, I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. So quickly we read this and we go straight to the faith of Abraham. We go straight to our own faith and we say, we've got we've to do something about that. We've got to have that faith. We've got we to obey. We've got to demonstrate our faith, all this other stuff. And while there's definitely room for us to emphasize those things, and the scriptures certainly do, let's not move so quickly to faith and let's just ponder this morning this extraordinary promise of God. It's beyond imagination. It's something that we couldn't even conceive of. And we have more information than even Abraham did. A very important verse, and this is a bit of a turn here, but a very important verse in this Advent series is going to be in Romans chapter 15. So I want to invite you to turn there. It would be important for you to see this. Romans 15. Again, if you're using that, uh, the Pew Bible there, it's going to be on page 1,128. 1,128. And look there under the 15, chapter 15. Look down to verse 8. Should be on the screen for you. We have that verse. Maybe not. Romans 15, verse 8. It says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the uncircumcised, I'm sorry, to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. I'm going to read that verse one more time, and I really want you to try to Break that down and think about it. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy." So many things that we could draw out of this. We could really camp here for ages, but I just want you to see two things out of this verse very quickly. One is this. Jesus, very clearly, as displayed in this text, is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, the promise that we focused on this morning in chapter 12. 
Okay? So the great nation, the blessing to Abram, the blessing that Abram will be to others, and not just to others in his time, but to all the families of the earth, is fulfilled according to this verse in Jesus. You've heard the statement, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, or are yes in Christ. That's what this is saying also. Christ became a servant. Christ came and died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. Why? And now he ascended into the, to the presence of the Father and makes intercession on behalf of his people. Why? He's serving the people of God to show God the Father's truthfulness of the promise that was given to Abram. And not just to Abram, but to all the patriarchs. All the promises are fulfilled in Christ. And then the second piece I want you to see, and it's clear in verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles, that's you and me, the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. When we think about this question, where do, where do the promises of God, particularly to Abram there in Genesis 12, where does that intersect with the season of Advent? It's right here. It's in Romans 15. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. And through Jesus, we can glorify God and receive God's mercy through Christ. That is absolutely extraordinary. And it's so extraordinary that, again, that many of you, including myself, we ask this question, well, why, if it's so glorious, if it's so amazing, why do we forget it? Why do we forget? Why do we allow our emotions and our awe to wane for Jesus much like they do for those Christmas gifts? Well, I've got two reasons. The first is this. Most gifts are temporal or temporal. Most gifts, they don't last forever. Recently, somebody gave me uh, a, a box of chocolates. What a wonderful gift. They didn't last long. Most of the gifts that we give, most of the gifts that we receive, they become the, as it's been said, the stuff of future garage sales and landfills. Most of the things that we receive and give don't Last, And so that's one reason. Why do we as humans so easily forget about the gifts that we've been given? Because they don't last. But that's certainly not the case with Jesus. And so you're saying, uh, uh, that's a good point. But it doesn't apply here. And it doesn't. And that's why there's another point. Not only are most gifts temporal, but all humans are fickle. All human. I just love that word. I've been looking for a word that rhymes with pickle that I could use in a sermon. Here we go. All humans are fickle. What does it mean? It means changing frequently, especially as regards one's loyalties, interests, or affection. All humans find themselves in this state. Why? Why are we fickle? Well, because we're fallen. 
all of us. We've left our first state of grace. And now in our sin, we're unable in our nature to even conceive entirely or properly of God. And your fallen state, apart from the grace of God, when you hear the gospel, you can't even really fathom what it means. You don't even know. We're fickle. And so it says nothing, our, the ease that we have in us to forget or to have our affections wane for God. And this great, extraordinary news that he has given to us, it says nothing of his work or of his nature, of his trustworthiness, and it says everything about our brokenness. And so why do we do it? Because we're broken people, which speaks even more as to the need that we have and how extraordinary it is that he would come to us. We're moving right along. We're now on the third question. Again, we won't spend long here either. But where is it that we stray? Where do we run to when we have our gaze drawn away from the extraordinary gospel, this extraordinary news that we've been given? Where does it often find itself? Well, today, briefly and really singularly, we'll, we, I want to highlight that we stray to covetousness. We stray to covetousness. We, we stray to greed. Covetousness, it's a strong wish to have something, especially something that belongs to someone else. It's the 10th commandment. We're not to do it. And yet, we do it. And so many of us, we go from loving and cherishing this gift that we have in Christ to coveting something that we do not have from Christ. That's covetousness. And there's a thousand examples. There's a thousand applications. There's a thousand subjects that we could introduce here, but I really just want to speak about covetousness. Why? Why is it so important that I mention it today? Because in this particular season, everywhere you look, everywhere you go, on every corner, there is an advertiser tempting you to believe that what you have right now is not enough to be content, not enough to be satisfied. And by the way, you might have caught that. I didn't say advertisement. I said advertiser because I want to really underline the intentionality behind the advertisement. There is somebody somewhere that says, I need this person to buy that product so that I can also have what I don't presently have. And in this season, a season of perpetual hope, it's been changed with perpetual advertisements, perpetual greed, and covetousness. And it's so dangerous not just because you won't have a merry little Christmas, but far more than that, it's, it's dangerous. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. The wise apostle Paul speaking to his young protege and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit comes to us again and says, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 and following, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Well, that's putting it very bluntly and clear. In other words, he's saying the, the goal is, the goal of every human in this life is to have God 
and be satisfied. Have God and be satisfied. And then he extends it a little bit in verse 8, which I think is a little humorous. He's like, well, you know, if you had food and clothes, then, and God, of course, then be content, right? And we're all like, yeah, that, that actually puts us at rest here. I'd like that we're all wearing clothes and that we uh, will have some food later on today. That's great. I am content with my relationship with God. But then in verse 9 he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He's saying if if you don't have godliness and contentment with that, if you're not just satisfied with God, he's saying you're in a very, very dangerous place. Not being satisfied with what you have in God will, in fact, draw you away from God. Which is ironic in this season that we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. That the very celebration that we start even before Thanksgiving is often used by the enemy in agreement with our sinful, fallen desires to draw us away from God. And look at verse 10. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some of you have wandered away from the faith and even pierced themselves through with many pangs. It happens so often being drawn away from godliness and contentment. It happens so often, it happens so quickly that you probably don't even notice it anymore. Isn't that scary? When things that are dangerous in your life happen so often and so quickly that it doesn't even scare you anymore. You're not even afraid anymore. That's one of the most dangerous places to be in. And yet that's where each and every one of us are. Again, particularly in this season. We no sooner close our Bibles from quiet time in the morning and pick up our phones only to be accosted by social media ads and online shopping ads. Immediately. Each of them quietly whispering that you need something else. And while it would never be so foolish to say it aloud, It's whispering, you're not complete. You'll never be satisfied. One more. One more. It happens so often. It happens so quickly. As soon as we walk out of this building into the parking lot, following communion, and we're confronted again by the idea that we need a new vehicle. And there's nothing wrong with new vehicles, but this desire, this drive to to change away and get something new. And we've heard it for a long time, keep up with the Joneses. It's still relative. Why? Because each of us are confronted on a regular basis by these lies. Every lesser thing 
lesser than Jesus, every lesser thing in this world, especially in this Christmas season, is vying to draw your attention away from the extraordinary gift that we have in Jesus Christ. Everything. And so what do we do about it? That's the final piece. We're sort of land the plane, and we want to see where the rubber meets the road, where the rubber meets the tarmac. Where, where does this actually apply to you and to me and to Hagerstown Church? We're asking the question, what can we do? The most incredible news that we've ever heard is being strangled and muzzled by consumerism, and each of us have to be on guard. And some of you might be thinking, well, he's talking to my dad. He's talking to my grandparents. No, child, I'm talking to you. Children, look, look at me. Young people, look at me. You need to be mindful that everywhere you go, everywhere you look, the enemy is trying to say to you, you need more than what you have right now in Christ. And it doesn't just start when you turn 18 or 19 or 41. Satan is whispering those things right now. He wants to draw you away from the Savior that you hold to be so dear, from this extraordinary news. He wants to call you to something else. You need something more. And there's nothing wrong with something else except that it often strangles out this extraordinary news that we have. Moms and dads, it's the same way for you. And don't just be aware. Be on guard. Guard your own heart. Guard your own home. And this isn't me saying, hey, don't watch uh, uh, television whenever the, the commercials and the ads pop on. Tell your children to look away. That's not what I'm saying. But be aware that this sinful desire to covet after something that's not ours and to buy that, say, I need something that's somebody else's. And to even look away from the God that satisfies everything that brings us and gives us true contentment, we've got to be on guard against that. So the culture in our homes is not covetousness. I want to just ask everybody here to think about your own home. Is your home's culture marked with covetousness or contentment? And I'm not saying white-knuckle contentment, but I'm saying Gazing into the face of Jesus and being content with what you have. Does that mark your home? Or is it this other option? Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. I don't know everybody here. And even if I did know everybody here, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I, I don't necessarily believe all this, but I am curious and I'm taking step after step to learn more and to grow in, in my understanding of this weird word, gospel, and what Jesus really offers, well, I want you to know something. As you peer into the church, as you peer into this Christian celebration of Christmas, I want you to know that consumerism and covetousness, if you're not careful, will crowd out the glory of Christ in Christmas. And so that when you peer in, you may see nothing but what in, in the church that, that you didn't see out of the church. And I want you to look really closely and listen to what I'm saying today. Christmas, the coming of Jesus, is not about getting something else. Christmas is about getting the one who came, Jesus himself. And so what do we do about this? What can we do? We've got to be on guard. We've got to look out. I've just got a few points for you this morning, and then we'll come to the Lord's table together. 
First, you need to remember your proclivities toward dissatisfaction. And that's something you can write down, and that's also something that you can say. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20. I want you to say this with me. I think it's on the screen. Is it on the screen? Proverbs 27, 20, survey says. Maybe not. Okay, not on the screen. All right, Proverbs 27, 20 says this. You can, you, you can, you can just remember this. It says, just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is never satisfied. I want you to say something with me. My heart is never satisfied. Ready? Let's say that. My heart is never satisfied. Do you believe that? Do you recognize that? You, if you're not careful when you walk down the street and you walk by those glass windows, when you walk through the mall or when you scroll through Amazon, you need to know that there's an enemy there that your heart is never satisfied. You've got to remember that. So what can you do? Notice we're not saying, I'm not telling you that there's these things that you need to do in order to become righteous or, or have a happier life. I'm not necessarily saying any of those things, but I'm saying because of what is true, we need to remember that our hearts are tending towards dissatisfaction. Second thing that we can do is confess our inability to fully appreciate the blessing. Confess your inability to fully appreciate the blessing. What do I mean by that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says this. That is, speaking of the gospel, what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What does that mean for us? It means that even as Christians who believe and trust the God that has given us the gospel, even us in our fallen state, when we hear about all the incredible things, we still can't paint an accurate picture with our imagination of what it's actually going to look like. Some of you might think, well, I, I don't really know if I like the idea of heaven. What I've heard of it sounds a little bit boring. Well, it's not boring. Here's the problem. You can't even conceive of the goodness and the glory that God has in store for you. That's what this verse is saying. You really can't even conceive it. You can't fully appreciate what's been promised, not until our faith has been exchanged for sight. It's only in that moment that we'll truly be able to know. And so what can we do in this life Today, in this Christmas season, we can remember our proclivities toward dissatisfaction and we can confess our inability to fully appreciate the promised blessing. And here's the last one we can remind each other of the grace of God. We can remind each other of the grace of God. There's a work for us to do in our own hearts and minds, and certainly there is a work for us to do in the body of Christ. I think of Proverbs chapter seven, verses one through three. It says, follow my advice, my son. Always treasure my commands. Obey my commands and live. Guard my instruction as you guard your own eyes. And this is what he says in verse three. Tie them on your fingers as a reminder. 
Write them deep within your heart. I love that. Anybody here ever tie something on your finger to, so you remember it? You wake up and your finger's all blue. Somebody just raised a hand with a stump on it. We forget. We're forgetful people, and we need to remind ourselves. We need to remind other people. And not just do we need to tie things to our fingers, but we need to, to write them. Ever written something on your hand? Parents get on to you. Your school teacher gets on to you. Well, the, song, the, 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 the proverb here says, don't just write it on your hand. Write it on your heart. And the idea is it's, it's deeper within. It's closer to the seat of your emotions. You need to be reminded of things. Remember, it's not the, there's not a problem with the product. There's a problem with the consumer. If the gospel can be conceived of as a product, there's no problem there. It's eternal. It's extraordinary. It's unimaginable, undeserved. And yet, as fallen creatures, we forget so easily. And so what can we do? Well, we can regularly remind each other of these things. Which is exactly what happened for me over the last couple weeks. I'm so thankful for the sympathy that's been shown by the church family here. I've got four brothers and four sisters biologically, but through Christ, I've got a lot, lot more than that. And as we grieve the loss of one of my sisters this, this uh, past week, and we, we put her into the grave, and we said, hey, we're going to leave her here until Jesus returns. I was surrounded by so many people through text message and phone call and uh, boxes of chocolates and other things, cards, just reminders and smiles from even across the room that in times of grief, we have something more than what we see in this life. And I was so thankful to be reminded by so many of you. And that's exactly what we've got to do in this Christmas season. And in all seasons of life, we're regularly reminding each other, no matter what season we find ourselves in, of the extraordinary nature of the grace of God. That it's unmerited, it's unprovoked, and it's unending. So we do that in times of grief, and we do that in times of celebration. Think about Christmas itself. What is Christmas, anyway? It's a season that the church for a few thousand years has said, hey, we're going to say Jesus was born on this day, and we're going to just celebrate the fact that God sent his son and fulfilled all the promises, and because of that, now we can be considered righteous in Christ, and we can approach the Father and have eternity with him. Like, that's what Christmas is all about. And, and now how has it become what it is today? And, and furthermore, how have we slid into that and gone along with it? Well, because we've not been on guard and we've not been reminding each other. And so how can we remind each other? Well, I thought of a few ways. One is traditions. And that's, another, that's maybe another cuss word, right? Some of us youngsters, we don't like tradition. But tradition's a beautiful and wonderful thing especially the good traditions, that accurately and pointedly point us to Christ. And so maybe in your own family, instead of just going with the flow, maybe this year you start a new tradition where you do a specific thing and you do that specific thing every year because you're guarding the meaning of Christmas. And you're preaching and proclaiming this extraordinary news so that you don't slip into consumerism 
covetousness or whatever else there may be. Maybe that tradition is an advent calendar that you have in your home. And you say, hey, once, once a day, we're going to pull something off this little tree or off this little shelf, and we're going to open the Word of God, and we're going to speak to our kids. We're going to turn the TVs off and the smaller screens, and we're going to gather around together, and we're going to go through this. Maybe it's not so holiday-oriented. Maybe it's just a personal Bible reading plan. The New Year's coming up. A new day starts tomorrow. Maybe you start off and you say, hey, I'm going to start a new tradition for me. That when I wake up in the morning, when I come out of bed, the first thing I do is open my, my Bible and hear from God. And maybe that sort of tradition that you start in your own life is something that safeguards and protects the glory and the extraordinary nature in, it, in your heart throughout your life. Maybe it's something simple like, hey, before we open Christmas presents on Christmas Day, maybe Christmas Eve before we go to bed, we're going to open up the Word of God and we're going to read the Nativity. Many of us do that already. There's so many other options. There's so many other ideas. I want to challenge you to really brainstorm. If you really think that what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is true, that you're in danger of being drawn away from God, drawn away from Christ through covetousness, and we've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to get to work and set up some guardrails for us. And not just for us, but for our posterity. And that's exactly what communion is all about. Wasn't that a cool segue? Perfect, right? It really is exactly what communion is all about. Jesus is saying, hey, I am the fulfillment of all of the promises that you know and love. They're all fulfilled in me. And I'm getting ready to leave. And I know your hearts. And I know when I was here, they were drawn away often. They were in danger of that. And I know when I leave, it's not going to get any better. It's not going to get any easier anyway. And so our Lord says, hey, I want you to do something. When I leave, and until I come back, I want you to observe the Lord's Supper together. What is the Lord's Supper? Supper? Well, it's, it's literally a reminder of the Genesis 3 and the Genesis 12 promise being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And by the way, before we come to communion, I want to say something. This is really interesting. Think about the Ten Commandments. What's the first command? There's one God, right? First command, one, one God. Don't have any other gods. And what's commandment number 10? Don't covet. Don't covet. I'm not, I'm not saying we don't need two through nine. We have them for a reason. But what, what is the connection between the first and the last? That when we have God, we don't need anything else. When we have God and we are truly satisfied in him, why would we need to covet? Everything we could ever want is in this extraordinary promise of God. And that literally is what communion is about. It's, it's reminding us of that. And if you're not a Christian today, today I want to ask you to, to not receive from the Lord's table. When the elements, when the trays come by, I want to just ask you to think about what we've talked about today. And don't partake. Because what Christians are doing when they receive the, 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 the bread and the juice, what we're saying in that moment is, we believe that we have everything in Jesus and we need nothing more. And that's why Jesus said, hey, I want you to, I want to start this tradition, if, if we can call it that. 
with celebration, and I want you to do that. And so, Christian, I want you to be prepared to think this morning as we receive about the extraordinary things that we've talked about today. And remember, your mind is going to try to race off to some next level thing, past these simple things, onto something more glorious in some way in your mind. But don't let it. And maybe your heart is going to be tempted to race off and think about what you're going to be doing after the service or maybe since we've talked so much about Christmas presents, what you'll be asking for. But don't let it. Over the course of the next few minutes, let's really think about the extraordinary gift that we have in Christ. God, we just celebrate now this extraordinary work, this extraordinary truth that you have revealed to us. Thank you for that. Thank you for the faith to believe it. Thank you for being a credible God as we'll look at next week. Father, thank you. We say this in the name of Jesus. Amen.